Mac Power Users, Episode 518, Technology in a War Zone with Mark Hackett. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. It is a uh, it's a new year, but we're still here. I'm Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hello, Mr. Hackett. How are you today? I am good. Uh, it's you know, it's I'm not a big believer in things like resolutions, but it's a fresh start. It's a new year. Uh, I'm excited. We've been planning a lot of fun stuff for 2020, and we're kicking it off with a pretty cool guest today. Yeah, I use the term Mr. Hackett generically. <laughs> today on the show there's two of us (laughs) yeah i'm I'm collecting them all (laughs) (laughs) well you've you've reached the end of it it's just it's just two of us (laughs) we're gonna marry on at some point welcome to the show mark hackett hey guys thanks for having me uh i'll I'll start to introduce mark although uh steven probably could do a better job than me (laughs) Uh, mark is steven's brother but i've been hearing about mark for years about uh, all the filmmaking he does he goes over to africa and he he does some really cool stuff and just in passing, Steve and I were talking about some of the stuff his brother's up to, and it was my idea. I said, we got to get him on the show. You know, he's a power Mac user. I want to hear about all his um, travel, his video work, and, and some of his other stuff. So I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show. Welcome to the show, Mark. Yeah, I appreciate being with you guys. So, so Mark, who would you say was a big influence on you growing up? No, just kidding. We won't. Oh, oh my goodness. No, we, we won't do that. <laughs> it's already um, starting. <laughs> It's going to get strange real quickly. Uh, But could you, Mark, explain for us, because I did a bad job of it, just the kind of work you do, though, so people understand. Yeah, so uh, I serve as the executive director of a small nonprofit called Operation Broken Silence. Uh, And we we focus specifically on the crisis in Sudan that's been going on for about 30 years now. Um, A lot of our work is uh, what we call storytelling and movement building. So we do a lot of documentary filmmaking uh, and photography work in Sudan. Um, so the Sudanese people can speak for themselves about, uh, not just the, the very severe challenges that they face, but also, uh, what makes them hopeful and and why they haven't given up on their country. And then just as importantly, we use, uh, those stories to fundraise and get people involved, uh, with very specific things on the ground that the Sudanese people are doing. And you've been doing this for years, right? Yeah, I think, um, oh boy, I've, uh, I first started getting involved with Sudan stuff probably back in 2007 or 2008. Um, and then in 2011, we started uh, the nonprofit and uh, haven't really looked back since then. <laughs> yeah, I remember some of my first conversations with Stephen where he was telling me about your travel over there and you were, you know, collecting video, doing documentary work and and telling stories about what people are going through over there. And uh, it's just really impressive. But it's also it makes you a Mac power user because, I mean, you've got to get all this gear on airplanes, get over there and and you run largely on Apple base. I, I guess in the Hackett family, that's a rule, right? I mean, you're not allowed to use <laughs> right. anything but Apple. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that is uh that's definitely true. Um, but for a lot of reasons besides just Steven. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, but also it's n- nice having a former genius like like as your brother. So whenever you have any problems, he can probably come <laughs> over and put it back together for you. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember when we were in college, I had a, a MacBook Pro, but Mark, you had a black MacBook and I was so oh, jealous because yeah. it looked so awesome. And even though my machine was, you know, the pro I just I lusted after that that black MacBook. So I remember that because that was really my first real uh, 
laptop and uh, I forget I think it, I think I literally used it until it died. <laughs> I had it for a long time. Yeah, that's nice. You know, when you just get an Apple laptop and you run it for its entire lifetime. We we had a that with a MacBook Air. I think it made it like eight years and it just ran out of gas. But single owner all those years. It's kind of nice when you have a computer that runs like that. You don't feel bad when it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And and it also had the bonus of being black and super sleek looking. Um Man, I kind of miss it now. <laughs> I haven't thought about it in a while. I've got one here. You can come play with it. <laughs> and the space bar probably still works. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it probably does. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, that machine, you know, eventually, you know, had its time and it left. Uh, what type of Apple gear are you using today? Yeah. So my uh, primary, uh, I guess, piece of equipment that I'm on most days is a uh, 2015 uh, iMac, um, wonderful 5K that yeah. uh, I very much appreciate every day, especially <laughs> especially when we're editing uh, all of our videos and photos. Um, so that's our, I'd say, kind of our big piece of of editing gear that we have. Connected to that, uh, we have our mass media storage, which is uh, a Drobo 5D. Um uh, it runs on Thunderbolt two. Uh, we actually do our editing off of the off the Drobo because it actually runs runs pretty quick, and it stores up to tw- we have it set set up right now to store up to twenty terabytes uh, of media. We're about halfway full on it now, so we have a uh, we have quite a bit of quite a bit of stuff. Now on the twenty fifteen iMac, is that a spinning drive or is that an SSD? Because that's during the time you could have got either. Yeah, uh, so it's an SSD, which I don't. I don't think I can ever go back to a spinny drive. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that's listening that's on a spinning drive, you really have a delight in your future. Mm-hmm. At some point when you get yourself to switch to SSD, it's it's going to be like, it's it's one of those moments in owning computers. Like we had the same thing. We went from floppies to hard drives. You're, you're in for a treat. I'll just say that. <laughs> Although there's probably not that many people left running spinning drives at this point. I, th- I think they're still out there. I mean, look, you can still buy a low-end iMac from Apple with a spinning drive, yeah. sadly. So I think they're still around. Come on, but, Apple. You know, yeah. But in the notebooks, they've been all SSD for, for years now. And those, you know, all those Retina, you know, the Retina iMacs, if you spec them up, like that like that 2015 that Mark has, which is actually my old machine uh, now, yeah. several computers ago. Uh, yeah, you guys, it's so nice. And it, it does make a big difference when when dealing with big files, definitely. So that that computer is going on five years old, but it's still running fine. Yeah, like I'm I'm on it pretty much every day, and we can put it through some pretty some pretty heavy work, especially when we're video editing, and um, it still runs like it's at least to me like it's brand new. Hopefully, we can keep doing that for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. I have the iMac Pro, which is a slightly later computer, but. I think it's two years old now, but it has so much headroom in it. I this is not one that I intend to like upgrade in three years. Like I, I would like to run this one into the ground because it just feels like I don't need anything better than this for a very long time. Mm. Famous last words, David. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I mean it. In this case, it was expensive, <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, the, and and doing video work even on a five year old iMac five K, you're not having any problems with that. It's it's keeping up. Yeah, it's keeping up, uh, and we'll probably get into cameras and all that fun yeah. stuff later. But most of what we shoot in it is 4K, um, as far as video goes. So, sure, um, the 5K screen just really helps kind of bring everything to life when you're messing around with colors and 
all the other fun stuff. Now with the Drobo, and you say you're using 10 terabytes of storage, something I always want to talk to video people is like, do you keep all your source video and everything? Or do you just, because I know those projects get massive uh, when you start working on them. Yeah, so all of our actual footage uh, and photography from Sudan, we keep everything um, just because it's... (laughs) Once you get that stuff, you're probably not going to be able to get it again. Yeah. We're one of, I think, now just two international nonprofits in the world that actually do any sort of video photography work in Sudan. Um, So even if we take a photo that's just okay, um, we keep it anyways because you'll never know when uh, something you'll, you'll really need comes up and that photo might be the only thing that can... Uh, that can that can deliver. I know Drobo by you know their design. If you run it, you know the way they want you to, it, it's going to make a co- it's going to have two copies of everything on the drive. Is that the way you're running it? Yeah. So we actually have uh, two Drobos. We are uh, we are backup uh, freaks <laughs> to say the sure. least. Um, so we put stuff uh, on our main Drobo, which is attached to attached to the iMac. And then we keep another uh, Drobo, exact same size, exact same model, um, offsite. And about once a month, uh, we bring it over, uh, back everything up to it. And so that way we don't, um, we can keep more space open on the Drobo that we, that we work on as opposed to eating through space twice as fast by having just copies on hand. Okay, so the Drobo is just making one copy on that drive, but you have a separate Drobo backup. Makes sense. Yeah, and then that also goes to to Backblaze as well. Um, yeah. So unless there's a <laughs> Backblaze must love you guys. They just uh, must think you're the best customer. <laughs> it, it, when we did our initial upload, it, I'm pretty sure it took like six weeks <laughs> for everything yeah. to transfer. That's a lot of stuff. Is that yeah. is that on the fifty dollar a year account? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, you're getting your money's worth. Let's just oh, think about totally. it that way. Yeah. 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 No, that's good though. I'm sure Stephen probably was involved when you were setting up your backup. Oh yeah, I mean, it, I mean that Drobo system has been set up for a while. But if you're dealing with, I mean, I'm dealing with this a little bit with my Mac Pro right now. If you're dealing with like more than two or three or four terabytes of stuff, like you just run out of options quickly to manage it in a simple way. It's just you know, especially with with 4K video, it's amazing how fast the space will get will get eaten up. I mean, even my little like YouTube videos, right? A single folder once it's done will be, you know, 100, 150 gigs worth of stuff. It's like, it, it just, it's amazing how fast you can eat through drive space. Yeah, it's funny because with the podcasting stuff, I mean, I'm not as involved with the post production on it as I used to be, but I don't keep all those because we record the show in native uh, resolution audio, which is very high you know, high memory usage. Once we have the show done and, and mixed down, I just keep that copy. I don't keep all the source yeah. files. It's just, but, uh, but I think with video it would be different, especially when the, the type of work you're doing, Mark. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, because a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the videos and photos we're getting are either in an open war zone or in a, a refugee camp that's nearby, um, you know, there's always the chance that people we meet just through kind of the chaos of the situation will we'll never see again um, for 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 whatever reason. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when we show up with cameras, <laughs> this is pretty much whoever we're meeting with. It's their one chance to 
to get their story out uh, into the world. Um, so part of keeping everything is, is not just to make sure that we have, you know, more and more material to work off over time, but it's also to respect the fact that, you know, we might be the only journalist type person that this person uh, we're interviewing ever meets. And we want to make sure that their story is preserved as best we can. I would also think that like maybe even families and friends looking for people who got lost in the chaos of it all would want to see some of your pictures and video to see if like they see someone, you know, there. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually interesting. Uh, anytime I go over there, um, I live here in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we have a large uh, Sudanese refugee community here and I normally get a list of, you know, several hundred names <laughs> from, from Sudanese families here that, um, you know, lost touch with a family member, you know, sometimes two decades ago and, and, you know, they'll hand me a name and say, you know, if you run across this person, um, this is one of my family and I would love to, to be able to see a photo or video of them. That, that must feel really good if you ever able to deliver on that. Uh, it does. And we've, uh, we've been, a, we've only been able to deliver on that two or three times, but, um, you know, when you are able to, to reconnect people, um, that way, even if it's just for a brief moment, just knowing that, you know, a son who might not, uh, you know, have ever really known his father, you know, one day learns that his father is actually still alive. Um, you know, there's, there's no dollar amount you can put on on a yeah. on an event like that. I remember once we talked on the show about like car mounts for for your iPhone, and a listener from Africa emailed me to explain. Well, the roads are so bad here. You just put Velcro on your dash, and then you put <laughs> Velcro on the back of your phone case, and you Velcro it to the dash. And it was like it was one of those moments for me. Like, wait, people in Africa are listening to the Mac Power users, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> just it was pretty crazy for me um but so so i guess when you go over to sudan you just bring i'm guessing the 15 inch i mean the 2015 imac and a big generator <laughs> right is that how you you sure. travel <laughs> no we um uh we normally have um uh, a macbook pro or a our high-end model MacBook Air with us um, that we can kind of move footage and photos around on. Um, and we're, we're, we're really lucky as a nonprofit. We have a small group of, of guys who do freelance video and photo work for a living, and they come with all their own gear and a lot of their own camera equipment and stuff too that they can, they can bring into to our line of work. Um, so we always actually, when we're over there, it feels like we always have a different laptop that belongs to one of those guys or, or one that we got just for that trip. Now, I understand you're not a super fan of the MacBook Air. I am not. <laughs> As I'm on one right now. <laughs> Steven never told me that. It's like, I think it's a dark, hacked family oh, secret yeah. or something. I've got, I've got one of those iPad first people in my, in my immediate family. <laughs> oh, you never told me that, Steven. <laughs> All right, we're going to redo this whole show now. <laughs> <laughs> just, just about the iPad. <laughs> All right, so what? What? I mean, what led you from MacBook Air to iPad? And, and give us the scoop here, Mark. Yeah. So before the 2015 iMac came along, uh, I had Stephen. Was it a? Was it just a? What was my iMac before that? Was it 2013? Yeah, it was. It was right before the Retina transition. So that's about right. Yeah, and I had a um, uh, a MacBook Air as well. Uh, so I wasn't used to Retina or 
5K <laughs> or anything that just looked crazy beautiful and made the work that we do a lot easier. Um, and so when I upgraded to the 2015 iMac, uh, I remember opening my MacBook Air like the same day and just falling out of love with it. <laughs> yeah, it, it ruins you, right? The retina screens. Yeah. It, when they first came out, I'm like, just don't look at it unless you want to buy a new computer. Yeah. And as the as the iPads have a, have slowly improved over the years, um, I just kind of realized one day, you know, this MacBook Air, I'm only using it in meetings. Um, like, I can just do everything that I need uh, off the 2015 iMac. You know, I can just do this on an iPad. And so I... I swapped those out, and I've uh, I've actually been really happy with it. So, just tell me, you know, where were the friction points for you when you made that transition, if there were any? Yeah, I think at first the probably the hardest thing. Um, we use Google Drive quite a bit, and I'm not a huge fan of the the Apple Google apps. <laughs> I'd say that was probably the the biggest thing, especially for taking notes in meetings or, or or things like that. And it was more of just a learning curve of getting used to kind of a a, a different way of 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 doing things. Um, but I did like um, a lot the just the the email functionality, being able to run some of our social media off the iPad on the go. Um, I just kind of like that it's lighter and I can move around more quickly with it and and get to things a little faster than than I could on the the MacBook Air. I would also assume that the power is a probably a good reason too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not having to you know, maybe forgetting to to charge the MacBook Air and showing up at a meeting and you know, sitting down and realizing, "Oh, we have to move because <laughs> because I need to charge my MacBook Air." <laughs> Um, you know, and just the, the iPad pro holds power for so long for what I need. Uh, that pretty much never happens anymore. <laughs> the Google apps are a, a kind of an unfortunate story with the iPad, right? Apple, you know, is iterating iPad OS and, and every year it's like, it resets a timer of, you know, when will Google support the new features in, in the iPad, right? It was split screen and then drag and drop. And now it's like multiple instances and, they're always uh, slow to to do that, but with iPad OS this year, you can do some of that in Safari now. Have you given that a shot of using Docs or uh, Drive in Safari on the iPad? Uh, I actually haven't. I've just I've just stuck to the apps for now. Um, I think I can kind of become a creature of habit a little bit, and once I start doing something, even if it's um, Maybe not necessarily the most user friendly <laughs> friendly way. Once I once I got used to the the Google apps, it you know it's gotten easier over time. Um, there are some things like sharing and, and things like that that are still a little frustrating, but it's all right. In the case of Google on the iPad, I feel like it's not even just like user unfriendly. It's almost user hostile at this point because they just it's a big company. They just don't seem to care about like making it. A, a responsible iPad app. Yeah, and I think I would assume it's this way for any small nonprofit or small business that runs in a lot of stuff in Google Drive. Um, but you know, if you're on a if you are on a laptop or a desktop, yeah, Google Drive is fantastic. Um, but once you move to to one of the one of the apps on your phone or on an iPad, it's kind of like, eh, well, this isn't the best thing ever. But I kind of have to live with it right now. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. 
Head over to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off. I like having 1Password on my phone because it's like having my own personal data vault. Not only does 1Password create and manage all the passwords I need to get into my online accounts, it also stores data for me. And all of that is locked behind the 1Password secure password. For example, when I go to my doctor and I want to take notes about what we talked about, I want to save that, but I don't want my health data going into something like Apple Notes, where anybody that gets access to my device can look through that stuff. Instead, I save them to a secure note in 1Password. It's like the belt and suspenders of security. With 1Password, your logins and private documents are securely stored in your password vault. This keeps your information locked away from thieves, hackers, and other unsavory types. But with 1Password, you get the benefit of security plus convenience because they take advantage of all those Apple technologies making it easy to get into your data. For example, with my iPhone, I just have to look at my phone and it uses Face ID to unlock my 1Password vault for me. 1Password makes your privacy their top priority. They're constantly iterating the product to bring new features to users. And best of all, with 1Password, you've got a company you know you can rely upon to keep your secret data secret. So head over to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off and start protecting your data today. When you're on the road, I mean, obviously you're not editing video on your iPad, or maybe you are, I don't know. Um, what type of work do you do when you're over there with your uh, iPad? Yeah, so um, so when I'm actually over there, uh, we uh, I am on a laptop. Um, I think you know one of one of the issues we run into over in Sudan is there's no internet. Um, there's not a lot of really any infrastructure whatsoever. Um, so all you need a laptop for is to just essentially move footage and photos around and, and manage that process. But when I'm here stateside, um, you know, in fundraising meetings. Uh, you know, meeting with a grant maker or donors or volunteers, whoever. Um, the the iPad's great because I can I have some of our videos um, saved on it that I can just pull up really quickly. Um, so even if I'm not attached to internet at the moment, um, I can show everything on a, on a nice pretty screen that I can just put in someone's hands, um, which is a really really powerful thing to have. I f- I think that's another thing I like about the iPad Pro is it feels a little more personal than than the MacBook Air does when you kind of spin it around and, and hand yeah. it to somebody. Yeah. The laptop always, I always felt like a laptop in a meeting is like a wall between you and the other person. Yeah. And, a, and, and a tablet is not, how'd you decide on the, the 12.9 inch one? That's the big one. Did you, I mean, how'd you decide on that one versus the smaller one? Yeah. So, uh, I think that was, that was probably a Steven thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, the, when I decided to go to the smaller uh, one, <laughs> Mark yeah. got the 12.9, but, uh. I mean, I, I remember you took a swing at the iPad lifestyle before that. And I think the 12.9 being that big sort of clicked for you. Like it does a lot of people uh, where it is more like a laptop replacement at that bigger size. I remember one of the the first iPads we had in our house. Um, I forget I forget the generation, but it was the iPad mini essentially. And it was like, this just feels like a big phone. <laughs> Almost. <Yeah. laughs> Wasn't a big fan of that one, but. I feel like in the Hackett and the Sparks households, it's really nice being there because equipment does drop out the bottom of the system quite frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to talk about, about too, Mark, is your use of iWork, but in particular, 
your use of pages and its its layout capabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, pages is probably one of the most un- underutilized um, programs on the Mac. I think a good example of this is uh, if you look at any of our annual reports, um, they're actually all designed in pages because it, it is just a really powerful program if you know how to use it, um, especially with how simple and user-friendly it is. Um, but we get normally a few times a year, we actually get emails from other nonprofits asking who put together our annual report because they like the way it looks and they feel like it tells a really good story. Um, and they, they think they need some sort of heavy software um, to get it done. And it's like, no, the odds are if you, know, if you have a Mac, like you can, with a little practice, you can do something like this on your own. And those templates are gorgeous. I mean, Apple has uh, layout and design people put those together. And you're right, they're not used that often, so they do look unique and interesting. You know, over time, we, you can essentially build your own templates as well. Um, you know, just by making a copy of a previous report you've put out about something and 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 tweaking it and, um, you know, the, the ability to drop in various shapes and then uh, drop photos directly into those. Um, you know, you can essentially make just about anything you want in pages and make it, <laughs> make it look like it wasn't even designed in pages. Now, are you, do you use pages on both Mac and iPad or do you just use it on one platform? I try to do anything design related or photo video editing related on the iMac. Um, in a pinch, I can do something on the iPad. Um, but man, I can maybe only think one or two times I've had to do that um, since I've had the iPad. Yeah, they, they've done much better in the last few years of making those apps compatible with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on a fairly complicated pages document today uh, or right now, and I've been working on both iPad and, and Mac, and I haven't lost any fidelity or you know things like getting dropped along the way. So I feel like Apple's kind of really made, I know they put a lot of effort into to making that happen. Yeah, and I know for me, uh, being at a small nonprofit, we only have two staff that are based here in the U.S. Um, you know, we can oversee up to 400 volunteers a year, you know, a few thousand donors a year. We're not exactly loaded on free time. <laughs> so yeah. I really appreciate a program like Pages that uh, is really easy to pick up and just get started in uh, and that you can move pretty quickly through it and have a, a wonderful product at the end. Something you said a minute ago I wanted to comment on was that, you know, you do production work on the iMac and, and, you know, the layout work on the iMac. And I'm a big fan of the idea of looking at your computer hardware in context. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're doing that. You've got a context, like you, you do video stuff on the iMac where you maybe do something else on the iPad. Um, I would encourage people that have multiple devices to think about it in that way. And if you get comfortable with that, it really makes it easier when you're making new decisions about if I need to upgrade something or whatever. A good example is I have a friend who who's um, uh, wants to get the new MacBook Pro, and then I was talking to him about what he does on it, and he really doesn't do anything with it that needs a MacBook Pro because he has a big Mac that he does that work on. So just give some thought to context. I think that's very helpful. Now, in terms of uh, video editing, you've mentioned you've got the iMac, you're doing the Drobo. What does your software look like when it comes time to edit a documentary or a promotional video? Yeah, so this is where you always get people that are really excited or or frustrated with you. Uh, we use Adobe. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we use Premiere for our video editing. Um, just in my experience, that's the most uh, versatile video editing program that's out there. And it feels like it has been for a while. Um, also, too, because all the other Adobe programs feed into it. Um, so we can edit our audio and have it drop back right into Premiere, uh, you know, through Audition. Uh, or something I've been slowly kind of wading into the weeds on um, is After Effects. Um to make some of our, our titles and, and other, other things look a little more pretty. Um, but just having all the, trying to do as much as we can in Adobe and because all their programs sync together for the most part, it does speed the, the editing process up. And for photo editing, we mostly use Lightroom um, just because it's a, a quick and, and powerful uh, tool. Um and uh, I at least think it's pretty user-friendly. Uh, we'll occasionally drop into Photoshop if we're feeling like we're having a really hard time with something. Um, but those are, I would say, Premiere and, and Lightroom are the, the two big Adobe apps that we're in the most. Now, did you learn editing originally in Adobe or um, Final Cut? So I learned originally in, in Adobe. Um, as we've had uh, video volunteer people flow through uh, our volunteer ranks over the years, uh, pretty much all of them have worked in Adobe. Um, and I've been able to pick up and, and learn from them and kind of copy paste some of their, their techniques over the years. Yeah. I mean, I do think it makes sense for Adobe, especially if you're working with people coming in and out, because it seems like that's the one everybody knows. Yeah. But I also note that like often it's the one you learn first is the one you stick with. It's like, why learn another one? Yeah. And I've, um, yeah, I've I've seen Final Cut before, and um, I know quite a few people use it, and it's really popular. Um, and you know, if I was starting over, I you know I, I might be using it today. I'm I'm not sure, but um, you know, once you've invested time, especially in something like Premiere, because uh, you know, starting out, you can make it a pretty user friendly. Uh, but once you start getting into really nitty gritty um, editing. Um, you know, the, the power that Premiere has, it takes a while to learn how to use all of its functions really well. You also rely, I guess, on the Google suite in general, right? You said Google uh, um, documents and Google file management and stuff for your, your file storage, correct? Yeah, the, the, the joke around our office is um, OBS is basically a, a big Google Drive folder. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not unheard of. Yeah, yeah but... Uh, it's great for us because, you know, whether we're in the office or on the go, uh, we can quickly check in on everything from how, uh, you know, some of our fundraising event committees are doing uh, with some of their event planning all the way down to um, uh, planning for some of the video trips that we do over in Sudan. Um, having it all in one place and easy easy to access for everyone involved, um, just it's been a game changer for us. It's, you know, people take that Google suite and they do so many different crazy things with it. I remember talking once with uh, David Wayne, the Hollywood guy, who they were using it to write scripts in, but they would just use different font colors to indicate different contributors. Uh, my kid at one point at school, because they couldn't have chat, but they all had Google Docs open, the classroom, a bunch of kids would have a Google Doc open and they'd be chatting while the teacher was teaching, which was very bad, but then the part of me like was kind of proud of her for figuring that out, you know? <laughs> Mark, can you talk a little bit about the Google 
program for nonprofits. I think some people may be interested to hear uh, what Google has to offer if someone out there has their own uh, their own nonprofit group they're starting. Yeah, so this is uh, Google's done a lot of really helpful things for nonprofits over the years. Um, arguably, their uh, Google for Nonprofits program uh, is the best thing that they've done. Um, so essentially, if you're a registered nonprofit, um, it takes a little work uh, and you have to communicate with Google some, but you can get the entire uh, Google suite um, or most of it initially, you get it for free. Um, that includes your own your own email, um, you know, Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets, everything in Google Drive. Um, you can extend that into, into Google Earth uh, if you can make a case for why you need it. And also attached to it, which a lot of nonprofits don't know about this, is Google will actually give your nonprofit up to $120,000 worth of free advertising a year through their AdWords platform. Um, I know for us, uh, you know, as we've kind of steadily grown over the years, um, you know, we now have donors and uh, fundraisers in 48 U.S. states and 16 countries. And when you reach out to some of those people, they'll they'll tell you, like, I was trying to learn more about Sudan because I, I saw something on the news and, uh, you know, I saw an ad for you guys and it took me to your website and, and that's how I decided to get involved. Um, so it's been a really, um, I mean, we're in Google, <laughs> we're in Google Drive every day and um, and their ad program has helped has helped bring us new supporters. Um, so yeah, if you work at a nonprofit and you haven't jumped on that, um, that's that should probably be a, a top priority for you pretty quick. <laughs> so share with us some interesting uses you guys are doing with the various Google Drive and Google um, online like docs and sheets. Some of the interesting uses you're using them for in your company. Yeah, I think uh, something we started doing about a year ago um, that's been really helpful for us um, is we have we have two annual fundraising events every year here in Memphis. And uh, the past two years, we've been kind of pulling some of our top volunteers into event committees to, to help manage those events and, and hopefully eventually take them over all together. Um, but all of their, their meeting notes, um, ideas, uh, they, each of those events has their own, uh, Google drive subfolder. Um, and so as they work their way through planning an event, um, you know, they can jump back to the meeting they had three months ago, pretty much instantly, um, and say, Hey, we talked about this doing, you know, maybe this fundraising strategy at this event before, but we don't remember everything. Uh, they can just jump back really quick and, and see exactly what they said in the last meeting uh, or, or what they were down the last meeting. Nice. Um, so that's been, that's been super useful. And then uh, we as staff can also pop into those things whenever we want and kind of see, see what progress they're making or see if they're struggling with something. Um, so we can, we can assist them. That's probably my favorite thing um, we've seen because it has been really useful to to bring those volunteers together when they're um, outside of their monthly meeting. Um, I think the the second thing is we're starting to do more uh, surveys that we're sending out to our supporters to get a better sense of um, not just who they are, but uh, how they you know came across us, um, kind of what they would like to know about our work. And Google Forms is a really great, easy, clean way to get information like that. 
And so that's helped us a lot as we've kind of tweaked our fundraising strategy over the years and and the types of stories we're trying to capture in Sudan. It's really helped us kind of narrow down what our supporters are looking for. Um, and so they not just so they can stay involved, but also so they can get their friends and family involved as well. Yeah, Google's great for that stuff. Uh, and also Sheets is another very versatile platform. You can do a lot with it. Yeah, we uh, we do all of our volunteer tracking in Google Sheets, um, uh, which is, as as we've used year after year, uh, because we're able to track people and follow up with them better, we're kind of seeing volunteers stick around longer and longer. Um, so it's been, uh, because we are a smaller nonprofit, we don't really need, you know, a platform that's as robust to Salesforce. Um, we actually got Salesforce once and after about two days of it, we're like, this is, this is way overkill for what we need it for. Yeah. Um, and Google sheets, um, uh, and then also our fundraising software, uh, those two things combined really take care of pretty much all of our needs. Now you guys don't, um, do your like video file storage in Google drive though, do you? Uh, no, we don't. Um, so all of our, all of our media is stored, um, on the Drobos and then also in Backblaze. Um, more of the, the day-to-day management stuff of the, of the nonprofit is pretty much all done in Google Drive, though. This episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. Jamf Now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your Apple devices. So it's easy to keep track of your own Mac, iPad, or iPhone. But what about those other Apple devices at work? Well, as a business grows, so does its digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices, which is especially true if you have remote employees. With Jamf Now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, and even lock or wipe a device as needed from anywhere. Jamf Now manages devices so you can focus on your business instead and there's no IT experience required. Mac Power users, start securing your businesses today by setting up your first three devices for free forever. Then add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com mpu. That's J-A-M-F dot slash mpu. Our thanks to Jamf for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So, Mark, let's talk a little bit about y'all's shoot. So you you use some volunteers, you get a bunch of gear, uh, head to Sudan for a while. Uh, What does that process look like in the planning and the gear that you take? And what are some of the challenges with doing something that, you know, a lot of people maybe do in a studio, but doing it out, you know, in, like you said, in a war zone? Yeah. So I think by the time people see our finished videos and photos, um, they think it's easier <laughs> than it actually is to get that done. Uh, anytime we have a team that's going over to Sudan, planning starts anywhere between six and eight months out from um, from the leave date. You know, there's all kinds of basic hoops you have to jump through. Um, you, know, you have to get visas and airplane tickets and in-country travel lined up, um, which, you know, in-country travel can be difficult when... Um, Pretty much anyone can shoot shoot down a plane, or uh, <laughs> or you know you can run into a variety of armed checkpoints from different actors. 
Um, and trying to plan how you're going to navigate that stuff as far in advance as you can, um, just takes a lot of time. And, you know, you always run the risk of you can plan everything. And then, uh, the situation in Sudan just completely flips upside down again. And you have to, you have to go back to square one. I think we're, we're really lucky in that we have a lot of amazing Sudanese partners, uh, included, in our in our partners as uh, you know journalists call them fixers, which are you know locals who know the terrain, they know all the the armed actors, they know where to go, where not to go, what's what's you know considered too dangerous. Um, and you know, we know several Sudanese like that who have guided us over the years and, and kept our team safe. Um, but planning planning that takes a lot. Um, so yeah, normally six to eight months. Uh, you know, when we say this is when we want to, we want boots on the ground over there, let, let's start planning in, in that direction. And then from there, you, uh, depending on kind of what the plan is, um, you know, we'll take a look at our current gear and decide if we, if it's time for an upgrade or, or if we're just missing something entirely and, and need to go ahead and invest in it. What, what type of gear do you normally bring with you? Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, bringing full on cinematic gear, like a a red camera (laughs) or something like that is pretty much impossible. Um, why is that? I mean, I'm, I'm totally ignorant on this stuff, but I mean, is it, is it just, you can't bring it in or you're afraid it'll get stolen or what's the, yeah. So part of it's just the size of, of, of cinematic cameras. Um, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, whether they're rebel, rebel soldiers or government intelligence, um, a lot of those guys or those types of guys don't like, uh, foreigners with cameras running around everywhere. Um, okay. and so the bigger the camera, you know, whether you're going through an airport and, in, in, in South Sudan, uh, say, and you know, your bags are always going to get searched. The, the, the bigger the camera gear, the more security forces tend to start freaking out. <laughs> And so, you know, th- thankfully, um, especially these past, you know, really 10 years, uh, you know, the power of cinematic cameras is, has been able to put in smaller and smaller devices. Um, you know, I guess what we would call prosumer materials. Yeah. Um, and you can get some, some really good, good media out, out of that. So, you know, having, um, you know, smaller cameras and lenses that still are, are pretty high quality can help you. Uh, navigate some of the the security challenges um, and also move around a little more a little more quickly. So, like DSLRs at this point, or yeah. So, like um, so right now we're on a, a Sony A seven three, which uh, has been my favorite camera we've had so far. Um, and anytime we go over there, we'll normally invest in an additional Sony. Um, uh, most at least for the foreseeable future, that would be an A seven S two, which is the 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 kind of for the Sony Alpha series that's the the film the film camera yeah and and that is almost like it looks like a tourist camera as you're going in so that probably makes it easier yeah it makes you look less like a journalist and more like a like a nonprofit type person which um, security forces tend to be a lot less scared of <laughs> so yeah now as you're over there and you're collecting footage what do you I guess that's an SD card camera so mm-hmm. you, what do you do with the footage when you, when you're over there I mean you, you don't have the drobo with you when you're over there obviously Yeah so this is this has been where data management over there has always been the the struggle at least up until a few years ago 
So now what we do is uh, we normally have two laptops on one of our media teams. You know, one is for more of a backup. Um, but we have four uh, four terabyte external Thunderbolt uh, drives uh, yeah. that are bus that are bus powered. Um, and so you know we're walking around over there with a full potential of sixteen terabytes worth of storage, which is you know way more than we're going to need in two weeks. But that allows us to go ahead and make. Um, copies of everything while we're in the field. Um, so if for some reason we lose a drive or, or um, you know, an intelligent agent or someone says, you know, you got to give me the drive and I'm not going to give it back, um, we still have another copy on us on another person that we can probably get away with. And those are with the, was a Samsung T5s or? Uh, those are WD, um, I think it's part of the Passport series, actually. Um, yeah, they're they're spinning Thunderbolt drives. So, uh, okay, par- part of the the challenge, uh, Mark, you can talk about is if you have a notebook with you, it, you, you're not guaranteed power to charge it. And so we looked at the well, Thunderbolt will be way faster than USB. So you have to have everything up and running for a shorter period of time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, nice thing is, is when you do find power, you can go ahead and get the laptop charged, um, and go ahead and move fo- whatever footage and photos you have around, um, and get your laptop charged all the way. So, so the next time, um, you know, you need to drop something and there, and there's no, there's no power. You can still do everything you need to do at least once or twice. Yeah. There, there's a new class of device. They're like battery powered SSDs and they have an SD card slot on the device. Yeah. So you don't even need a computer in the middle. You can just stick the card in there and it it, it copies it down. Uh, have you ever looked into any of that stuff? It seems like that would be perfect for what you're doing. Yeah, I have a feeling um, probably by the time we send our next team, whenever that is, we'll probably look at, at doing um, a couple a couple upgrades on specifically the gear that we take over there. Um, and I would put drives near the, near the top of that list just because of the power situation alone. Um, you know, we, we do normally travel around with a, a backup battery that can give, um, that can give a laptop normally two charges. Um, but you know, any extra power we can bring with us, we're always interested in figuring out how that works. Yeah. And I would imagine the same thing with the cameras that you, you must carry a lot of batteries for the camera. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I was over in 2016, um, uh, it was a, a five person team, including me. We all, each had different cameras for different things, but our two, uh, at that point we had two Sony a7S twos and, uh, each of those cameras came with 12 batteries because, <laughs> uh, wow. you know, Sony isn't exactly known for, for high quality battery life <laughs> on cameras. <laughs> well, it's better now actually with the newer ones, but the, uh, for a while it was really bad. Yeah, the that's one of the things I've liked about the A7 III is the battery life is a lot better. Um, but when you're really pushing those A7S2s, you know, filming six or seven hours a day, I mean, you will pretty much burn through, you know, six to eight batteries depending on, on how hard you're pushing them. Um, What's the longest you've ever gone over there without getting access to power to recharge everything? Oh, man. Uh, I was over in 2012. Um, that was about a year after the latest war in Sudan began. Um, so things were still very chaotic. A lot of aid groups had pulled out. Um, you know, so what infrastructure was there was quite literally being destroyed while we were there. Um, and so we went, there was, 
I think it was four days we went without finding power. Um, and wow. we, I don't know how it worked out. It was really a miracle, but we literally ran out of power. And a few hours later, we, we stumbled into a power source um, and was, were able to kind of get things up and running again. Um, so that's probably the closest we've been to, I, I guess, what I would call the power apocalypse. But <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have like a favorite? You must have like a favorite like battery accessory that you like a vendor or somebody use. I mean, you, you are actually using that way more than most of us are. What's the one that you rely on when you head over there? Yeah, so I'm a really big fan of, um, you know, invest in a good system that most things native are going to be good on. And if not, the, you know, the company behind wherever that system is, is over time going to deliver that. Um, so we, we were pretty, we went in pretty early when the Sony Alpha camera started coming out. Um, and uh, so we're on Sony batteries and chargers and, and everything. I know there's some off-brand ones out there that, um, you know, people like a lot, but at the same time, I've, I've read the horror stories of off brand batteries, um, light catching on fire and all kinds of, sure. all kinds of horror stories like that. But yeah, we try to stick to pretty much everything Sony as far as camera stuff going, including the batteries. Now, do you typically have internet access when you're over there? No. <laughs> okay. Um, so normally when we're to get into, into Sudan, at least until very recently, the part of Sudan we work in essentially straddles the the border of Sudan and South Sudan. Um, and so to get into that area, you have to go in through South Sudan. Um, so there's internet in the capital, Juba. And once you start moving away from the capital, internet becomes harder and harder to find. There's a there's a main refugee camp, uh, Yida refugee camp. That's where a lot of our, our focus has been the past few years. Um there's very limited internet internet there now um, that just started up a few years ago, um, which has been which has been great. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, like, how do you communicate? But I guess you just don't if you don't have internet. Yeah, so we uh, um, communications are really a really tricky thing. Um, we carry a satellite phone pretty much just for emergencies. Um, so uh, you know, it's kind of a interesting side note uh when you <laughs> when you travel with a satellite phone in sudan you leave the battery out of it because even if it's turned off the sudanese government um which is responsible for a lot of the suffering in sudan can, can still ping uh most satellite phones even if you have it turned off which um there's a satellite phone floating around a war zone tells the sudanese government there's an outsider um who's there probably doing some sort of media work <laughs> And so the satellite phone is literally the worst case scenario. Like we're just going to send up a flare, uh, yeah. you know, make the call, even though it means some of the bad guys are going to figure out where we are. Um, and to, just to kind of get a message out that, that we need some sort of assistance. Um, and uh, we do also have a secure GPS pinger that has some emergency features built into it. So, so normally once a day we'll ping our location and, um, in a very specific way that shows that it's actually us pinging it uh, back to someone here in the U.S. Um, to let them know that um, that we're okay. Um, and if something does go wrong, like we don't check in or anything, there's a whole system of protocols that that start kind of unfolding on their own for trying to figure out where our where our team is and and how do we get them out. 
man, I, you know, I'm feeling really bad right now. Cause I, I went over to London like a year ago and like getting the, the right plugs. I thought I was like such a martyr. To do that. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you when, when they're on their trips, uh, my phone does not go into do not disturb. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a little stressful yeah. being on the other end of it, yeah. but it, it is, uh, sort of an amazing thing to think about. I was just thinking about now as, as y'all were talking about, you know, like, like right now, if I'm working on a project with somebody, we're using Dropbox to sync files back and forth or Google Drive or, or what have you, but that's just not an option in so many places in the world where mm-hmm. if there is internet, it's very slow and, and fragile and you can't upload stuff. So like the only way to get things around is sort of the old fashioned sneaker net. Yeah. And it's weird how after all these years, like in some, some parts of the world, the, old school satellite phone is still the only way to, to to communicate to the outside world. And then I'm guessing you, you distribute those drives with all the data on it as the trip progresses to different people. So everybody's got a copy. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Um, I remember, uh, I was over in, in 2014, uh, we were in, in another refugee camp in South Sudan. Uh, it was for people who fled out of the North though. And, um, just middle of the day we were filming this guy in a uniform shows up, you know, he says, I'm South Sudanese national security. Like you have to come with us. Um, which if you can seriously avoid it, you want to, um, not go with (laughs) with my my blood pressure is going up as you tell me the story. (laughs) (laughs) You really want to not go with any intelligence, uh, or, or really anyone who's in the military in this part of the world. Um, but at the same time, when they tell you, you got to go, like you, you kind of don't have a choice. Um, you know, thankfully they, they just really wanted to know kind of, kind of what we were doing and, um, um, you know, make sure that we weren't causing any problems for, for anyone in the area. Um, but I, I remember when, when we were driving to, to their, uh, uh, regional headquarters, that we had already distributed drives across our team and that each team member had those, um, drives hidden in different places in their mountaineering bags. And one of the guys had actually, uh, left his behind, uh, with a Sudanese guy, um, just in case, <laughs> uh, one of, the, one of the guys we were interviewing, he left it with him. Um, so, you know, once you get over there and you kind of sense the, the situation and your brain just kind of naturally starts thinking through like, okay, if this, situation happens, you know, how do I make sure our media is protected through all of this? Um, and it kind of, it comes a little more naturally than you, than you'd probably think it would. But for most people listening, you would always think, well, they're always going to have a cloud copy because that's what we think Yeah, <laughs> today, but you don't. Yeah. Um, now of course, as soon as we get back to the United States, like everything goes on the Drobos and, <laughs> and into Backblaze. And then we normally yeah. keep, we normally keep them on the 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 four terabyte Thunderbolt power drives too, just for the time being. Um, but yeah, when you're over there, you know, managing data um, essentially as best you can and, and trying to always keep it hidden away somewhere um, is always a top priority. So we got data management, you got power. What are the other technology problems you have on a trip like that that, that I wouldn't think of? Um, uh, you know, we already talked about this, but communication is really the 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 most challenging thing um both from a, a security standpoint and also um you know uh, when we have teams go we of course all have loved ones who are here who uh don't trust our sudanese partners as much as we do <laughs> um sure 
uh, just because they don't know them. Um, and so, you know, I might pretty much on every trip, uh, you know, I'll go for two to three weeks without talking to, um, to my wife, for example. Um, and that's not just hard for her. That's obviously hard for me. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're married or when you have, you know, really close family members who are concerned about you and all they get is a essentially a GPS ping every day. It says you're okay. That's still not very, um, very encouraging <laughs> for, yeah. for most people. Um, so I hope one day someone creates something that can kind of overcome all of that before, for the foreseeable future. Um, some of the more old school technologies are, are still the only way to go as far as communication. Yeah, there's all this talk about like widespread internet, you know, where you could go into a place like Sudan and, and just, you know, blanket internet across the country with very little tech investment. But I, I feel like it's probably still years away. Yeah. And uh, Google had their, was it called Project Loon? It's like the hot air yeah. balloon project. And I remember where they announced that. I was like, man, if they could just park some of those things over Sudan or move them in and out, like, how much easier things would get for so many people over there, including us. But uh, my understanding is that that project isn't really moving anywhere. Yeah. Now space SpaceX has you know their Starlink system where they say they're going to be able to offer you know high speed internet all around the world. Like I, I I do still think it's on the horizon, but I don't think it's anytime super soon. Yeah, agreed. Well, Mark, I am, I'm just so impressed that you're able to pull this off. I mean, obviously, there must have been a heck of a learning curve for you. It has been a learning curve. Um, I think, um, you know, for us, the the Sunnis partners we have over there are so connected and so fantastic, and they know the limits on, you know, places that they they should allow our teams to go. Um and they're really the ones that make all of this possible. Um, we wouldn't really be able to get to anywhere we go in Sudan or in the refugee camps without them. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're really the people that, that make everything happen. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Health IQ. Go to healthiq.com slash MPU to get insurance for the health conscience. Save up to 41% and take the quiz now to see if you qualify. At some point in the last couple of years, you've probably created or maintained a healthy habit, whether that's getting enough sleep, working out, or just trying to eat the right foods. If you live a healthy lifestyle, you could be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates, and you could save up to 41%. Just take the Health IQ quiz, and then they'll walk you through the entire process of applying. The policy is underwritten by one of their top insurance partners, and there will be a real person at the end of the phone who you can call to chat to. The savings are exclusive to Health IQ, so you won't find them anywhere else, but you do have to qualify for that special rate. I started getting a lot more healthy when I got this Apple Watch. It's those rings on my wrist. I just can't help myself. My wife and I decided we're not going to slide into middle age easily, so now we go to the gym, I fill those rings, and we try to eat better. If you go over to healthiq.com slash MPU, you can take the quiz, and everyone should do that. It could save you a lot of money. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash MPU to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. 
Again, that's healthiq.com slash MPU to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time, healthiq.com slash MPU. Our thanks to Health IQ for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. As part of a um, nonprofit, you know, one of the things you need to do is use social media to get the word out, to do mm-hmm. fundraising, and and the whole message you do. And um, I I know that you're a big user of social media. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different platforms and and what you do. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so we're on the big three: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Although it feels like Facebook and Instagram are slowly becoming. <laughs> Uh, one. one thing, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what we've, what we've discovered over the years is we have different audiences and different supporter types that come to us through those different platforms. Um, which means each one, uh, at least for us need, needs a tailor, a very tailored approach. Um, so Twitter is really great for sharing just information about Sudan. Um, you know, recent news program updates from us, things like that. Um, Facebook is, uh, at least for us has been a really great way to actually get directly engaged with supporters and potential supporters. Um, just, you know, that's kind of our, our shotgun platform where we can post news articles and program updates, but also do direct fundraising appeals. Um, uh, we have a Facebook group that's just for, um, donors and volunteers and, and people that have been around our organization for a little bit longer of a time, um, as kind of a place that our staff can reach them very quickly if we need to. Um, but also they can, they can meet each other on. Um, but I think Instagram is at least for the, the next few years will probably be our primary platform that we're focused growing our presence on. Um, because we are so media centric and storytelling is at the heart of pretty much everything we do. Um, you know, just Instagram's, uh, really still the simplicity of that app and just highlighting our beautiful images on it. Uh, it's a really unique way to, to not just keep our current supporters engaged, but also, uh, as new people stumble into us on the platform, um, they get to essentially learn about Sudan often for the first time, uh, but not just that, also meet a nonprofit that, that's actually doing things on the ground there. Um, so I, I think um, I think that's probably why Instagram is going to be our primary one moving forward. Um, it's also our fastest growing um, as far as followers and engagement goes. Um, I mean, the beginning of 2019, we only had 800 Instagram followers and we're closing in on, I think, 3,200 now. Um, just because we've been able to kind of tweak the way we, we share our stories on there to engage more and more people. Well, I think that, you know, it's smart, whether you're doing a nonprofit or a business or whatever, to think about each platform in terms of what it can and can't do. And like it, it, they do have different audiences, so you need to tailor for that. I think that's really clever the way you've set this up. Mark, when you're thinking about a piece of content or a story you want to tell on, social media, uh, are there some things that you think about, you know, taking that one piece of content and adapting it to those three different platforms? How do you go about that sort of thing? 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good question. So we've started to try to do that more and more, especially last year. Um, yeah, I, I think the looking at our normally about once every two months, we'll do a pretty extended blog post um, that really dives into the nuts and bolts of a specific issue in Sudan. And those are often longer reads. Um, sometimes they can run up to 15 or 16 minute reads. Uh, that's really when we try to provide a lot of detailed information for for whatever reason. Sharing that to social media can be a challenge where everything is shorter and faster and... <laughs> Uh, you know, people are just kind of looking for the highlights of pretty much everything. Um, but I, I really think that's why it's important to know what your audience is on each platform. Um, cause on, on Facebook, we can take just excerpts out of whatever it is we wrote with a link, um, to essentially read more and share it. And we'll normally get, you know, quite a few click throughs and shares and, you know, people sending us direct messages, asking questions, um, things like that. Twitter, just because of the way Twitter works, um, you know, we'll take an article like that and um, share it with normally just one short excerpt or, or or more frequently what we've started doing is sharing kind of the main point that we're trying to make um, just on that and uh, let people kind of find the way to their blog from there to get more. Um, but Instagram has been the really tricky one around that because it is so media centric. Um, and so, you know, this is one that we talked earlier about saving every photo we take, you know, every video clip we have, um, just in case. Um, and so if we bring up a, a specific, um, issue in Sudan, whether it was a security incident or a programming challenge or whatever it is, um, I can go back years and find a photo that really speaks to whatever the issue is. Um, and share it on Instagram with either a caption from, um, from from the blog post uh, with with all the extended information, um, or just some some basic information about the issue, and that people can head on over to to the link in our bio to to learn more. Um, but yeah, all those things are always a moving target because um, algorithms change. Um, you know, the way we even communicate changes over time. Um, and so trying to line all those things up, uh, means, you know, oftentimes you, you do have a lot of good hits and other times you just kind of miss the ball entirely. When do you sleep, Mark? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, when I can, no, (laughs) um, no, I, I, you know, over the years as we've grown, my job has, you know, slowly transitioned from, a 24 seven thing to, to more of a traditional nine to five with some, some pretty extended check-ins, you know, on weekend days or days that I'm off. Um, so I, I sleep at night, most nights. There's <laughs> just so much going on. What's, what's the most rewarding thing about uh, running a nonprofit? I mean, you, you're, you've been in the weeds now for a long time. Yeah, I would say there two things for me. Um, one, uh, and this is my favorite, is seeing our programs in Sudan actually working. Um, you know, the two things we're probably most proud of, um, we have two schools uh, in, in one of the main refugee camps over there that are run entirely by Sudanese teachers. We actually have very uh, little say in, in the day-to-day operations there. We just provide the funding for it. Um, and as we've told 
visual stories about these schools and the teachers and the students for years. Um, and as more and more funding has come in for those places, seeing how the teachers have used that to actually uh, improve the educational experience for, for students who a lot of them, you know, have lost their parents in the war or don't know where their parents are. Um, and that these schools are, are a safe place for them to essentially just be kids. Um, and, you know, seeing test scores go up as more funding goes in and things like that, you know, it's, it's good to see and encouraging to see things working the way that they should be working. The second thing I really like, though, is, you know, when someone does see one of our videos that doesn't know a lot about Sudan and you're watching them watch it um, and you can see the light bulb turn on in their head whenever they hit that moment in the video that we want to really emphasize of, you know, this is the core problem and this is the the key solution to it. Um, and this is how you can be involved. And you see that light bulb click in their head. Um, that's a really rewarding experience to say like, okay, like this video we put out for this very specific reason, you know, it's actually doing what we intended it to do. Um, and that, that's always really encouraging to see. It must feel great. Yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> okay. I want to talk to you about apps and services because okay. this is also still the Mac power user. So we're gonna take a quick break and, and let's, Uh, finish up with that. This episode is brought to you by Booz Allen. Modernizing for the future is a challenge, especially for large organizations. You may need to integrate legacy systems with new technology. You may need to incorporate AI and analytics to work more efficiently and make faster decisions. And everyone needs new ways of thinking to move to what's next, whether for government or commercial goals. Booz Allen understands that they're trying to help some of the world's largest organizations modernize. They understand the missions of government and industry and the need to adapt to constant change. They provide open source solutions so clients can integrate innovation from anywhere, whether from visionary startups or major contractors. Plus, they're helping clients power new technologies with analytics. And because security is everyone's priority, they integrate their capabilities with intelligence-grade cybersecurity. With Booz Allen, integration means putting you in control of innovation. Integrate, innovate, get it done with Booz Allen. Learn more at boozallen.com slash relay. That's boozallen.com slash relay. I'd like to thank Booz Allen for their support of the show. So between all of your travel, running a nonprofit, and the fact that you're fully invested in the Apple ecosystem, share with us some of your favorite apps. Yeah, so one of them is an app um, a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, it's called Classy. Um, it's, a it's fundraising software. Um, but we pretty much run all of our fundraising campaigns and donation pages on classy. There's really two main things that I love about it. Um, one is the, the front end is absolutely beautiful, um, and very media friendly. Um, so if you go to any of our fundraising campaigns, whether it's for the schools that we support, um, or, or a hospital that's actually in, in the war zone that we support. Um, you, you don't just get to see a bunch of words about like, you know, this is where your money goes. This is why we need you to get involved. Um, you actually get to see um, photos that are, you know, embedded behind some of the text um, of those actual programs and, and, you know, videos that you can, you can watch as you learn more about that specific program. And that's a web service, right? It is a web service. Um, yeah. You know, roughly... You know, on any given year, you know, 90 to 95% of all of our donations actually come in through through Classy. 
uh, through one of our campaigns or donation pages on there. Um, and I credit a lot of that to, to being just the way the front end of it is, is because it is so media, media friendly. You can actually show people what's happening in Sudan and, and immediately give them a way to get involved all in one place. Um, is a really powerful thing. The second reason I like it is on the back end. Um, it's basically a very simple, straightforward CRM. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier that Salesforce was just way overkill for our needs. And Classy is essentially, um, you know, you can set up your your Classy account to feed into Salesforce if you're a really, you know, big nonprofit that's been around for a long time. Uh, but if you're like us, um, Classy's taken really the best parts of Salesforce that are most user friendly and put them into their own their own platform uh, or, or a similar version of it. Um, so you know, we we of course license um, the software to use it every year, um, but it also comes with a CRM essentially built into it, which is which is really nice. That's definitely my favorite app. <laughs> uh, we we would. We would not uh, be able to, you know, essentially connect Sudan to the outside world without without Classy. Now, has that been with you the whole time, or I mean, how did you land on Classy? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty much been with us the whole time. We started investing in Classy shortly after after we became a nonprofit in 2011. I actually just stumbled into it online. Uh, I, I think I saw another nonprofit. It was. Shortly after Classy even started, another nonprofit uh, I think I saw was experimenting with it. And I'd never seen a donation page or an online campaign like it before. Um, and I started digging into it and looking around. And at least at that time, there really wasn't a lot of good online fundraising platforms for nonprofits to tap into. And uh, I, I, after I talked to one of one of Classy's team members and um, learned that, you know, they were really going to push the next few years um, to make all these tools that nonprofits really desperately needed to come into the digital era, um, that they were going to, they were going to help make that possible. I was like, okay, we need to, we, we need to get in on the ground floor uh, as they start to grow, um, which has been, which has been really great for us. We don't talk about it enough on the show, but it is interesting how no matter what industry you're in or product you're making, quite often there is a very mature web service out there that solves the problem for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of time folks have a business and they're like, like someone could have come into Mark's position and say, okay, we need to hire a web developer and come up with a solution. And, you know, you're just buying a lot of problems with that. You know, you've got to have a full-time developer to keep it running. And as the internet changes, you've got to keep modifying it. Um, this is definitely something you can subcontract out and um, seems like classy is the one for a nonprofit, you know, but there, no matter what business you're in, you should, you should take a look around before you start building your own widget. Yeah. And I would always encourage people to, because what really sold me on classy was I talked to one of their staff and hearing not just everything their platform could already do, but just how excited the staffer was to be working there and to be a part of building that fundraising software um, that's what really sold me. I was like, man, like this person I'm talking to who works here is all in on this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, knowing that, that they're doing this because a lot of them are former nonprofit professionals themselves. Um, you know, they, they get how hard it can be for groups like us and they want to, they want to help make life a little easier. Like that for me was, was the big thing. So I would encourage anyone, if you're looking, you know, 
whether you're a nonprofit looking for fundraising software or a small business needing something else, like just re, you know, if you find something you think would work, to actually talk to someone who's a part of it, and you can normally get a really good sense of if it's right for you or not. What what other services do you guys rely on? Yeah, um, I'd say Slack is probably our next biggest one, um, which seems to be everyone's biggest one. In the past it it few powers years. everything anybody does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, because we are a, a small nonprofit, um, that does, uh, you know, that pretty much punches above our weight quite a bit. We have to move very quickly, um, on a lot of different things. Um, and so having something to not just replace email, but that we can, uh, very seamlessly and easily bring in, uh, additional people as needed into a single place to, to communicate on the go has been really helpful, um, for us. So our staff communicates on Slack pretty much every day. Um, uh, our board of directors has their own, um, has their own group on there as well. Um, and last year we started actually bringing some of our, our top volunteers who do, do very specific things, um, into, into different, uh, into different Slack channels as well. Um, so they can kind of communicate with each other, um, on planning events and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so for us, it's kind of like, a, and really for a lot of people, it's just an internal communication hub that our staff can not just monitor everything on, but it, it kind of brings our supporters a little closer together in, in a little more private way than, say, like our, our Facebook group can. Yeah, uh, it is amazing how many businesses run on Slack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, if you can use it as an email replacement, it's really amazing. If you use it just as like another place to just keep handing out obligations, I think it becomes a burden. You know, it, I think the trick is in the execution. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know for, for Relay, at least, it has totally replaced internal email. Like, we just, there's yeah. no internal email Relay hardly at all. It all happens. Uh, in Slack. And, and I think the same is true for uh, Operation Broken Silence. Yeah, it is. Um, I, you know, now that we're thinking about it, our other staffer, Audrey, I can't remember the last time I actually emailed her anything because <laughs> uh, we just talked to each other on Slack. So, <laughs> And uh, you put a, a note in here, uh, Google Drive, and then in parentheses, RIP Dropbox. Yes. <laughs> what, what have you done? <laughs> I have uh, ended our nonprofit's Dropbox subscription. So, <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things as as last year was closing down, um, I was just kind of a little fun end of year exercise I do is kind of looking back on the year and thinking, you know, really broad strokes, but like what worked well, what didn't, what programs or systems do we have that work well or you know, maybe we need to look at changing or just don't work at all for us anymore. And uh, Dropbox just kept coming up as one thing that just like, you know, we can file share on Slack. Um, we can put stuff in Google Drive. Like, I don't know why we're paying for this Dropbox subscription. I haven't I haven't put anything there in months. <laughs> um, and so for us, uh, you know, and just the the sense of trying to keep things as simple as possible because our mission is can get very complicated sometimes and, and the work we do can get very, can get very complex. Um, anything we can do to simplify, I'm always a fan of. Um, and it, this was just seemed to me, at least for now, this is one system we had hanging around that I really didn't have a good reason for us to have anymore. Um, 
So I went through the very surprisingly extended process of canceling our Dropbox subscription. Oh, wait, a web service was hard to cancel? No way. <laughs> I'm, through the process, I'm pretty sure I was asked like five times, like, um, like, are you sure you want to cancel this? Like, give us, tell us why. And like, and all this stuff is like, I just want one button where I just cancel it. <laughs> Or or when they want to connect you to the loyalty department or the retention yeah, department, yeah. That, that, that never feels good. I, I don't want I, to have anything to do with anything called a loyalty department. Yeah, it feels very. I don't know. It's not. It's not good. It's not uplifting. Yeah, no, it's not. The um, uh, Dropbox is interesting as an Apple user because when you install Dropbox on your Mac, you're doing a lot more than just installing an app. Mm -hmm. Um, It really kind of digs into the roots of the system in order to make some of those Dropbox magic happen. And I think there's a a good reason to do it. Um, Apple's, you know, iCloud still doesn't have some of the sharing features and other things Dropbox has, so I understand why people do it. But I also think a lot of people don't realize when you install Dropbox exactly what you're doing. And and not only is it, I think, hard to cancel, it's going to be probably pretty hard to to get the software off as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, um, again, like canceling the subscription was a lot. I kept clicking through pages. I was like, does this ever end? Is this a trap? <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, uh, uninstalling it and everything. It was like, this is way more work than, than it needs to be. But, uh, we're off of it for now. It doesn't mean one day it'll, it'll work for us again. Um, you know, when we were using it more heavily, it made sense, but it was just kind of one of those things as time went on. It's like, oh, this doesn't really doesn't really meet our needs anymore. I'll be curious to see where the cloud services are in a couple of years. I feel like we're kind of at the point of a bunch of them getting parity and then people won't necessarily need multiple accounts. And hopefully this all just gets easier. That's, that's the plan, at least. Right, Stephen? I mean, I hope so. You know, I, I, I've got stuff spread across iCloud, Dropbox, Google Drive, you know, as many of our listeners do. And part of it is different teams work in different yeah. ways. But yeah, it would be nice if if it could be simpler for everybody. Well, I am so impressed. I, I've always been impressed with the story Stephen has told me about the stuff you're up to. And I'm so glad we were able to talk about it in the show and, and learn more. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, I appreciate you guys and and hoping to to uh, share our story and, and the way that we do things. Yeah, and if you're interested at all, it's called Operation Broken Silence. You can find it at operationbrokensilence.org. You can go over there. You can you can help with fundraising. You can learn about Sedan and well, there's a handsome picture of Mark <laughs> on the, the team. <laughs> I, I see I see the Hackett in there definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the uh, but, but yeah, between you, Mark, and Stephen, and and all the great work you're doing at St. Jude, I feel like those Hackett brothers—they're doing good for the world. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully history looks back looks back kindly on us. We'll uh, we'll see. <laughs> so, is there any other links we should share other than like what is your Instagram and Twitter accounts? We should at least put that out there as well. Yeah, so on Twitter and Instagram, we're at ob silence. Um, so shortened Operation Broken Silence, just OB Silence. Um, and on Facebook, you can just search us as Operation Broken Silence and we'll be the the first thing that comes up on there. Um, but yeah, we'd love for for anyone to follow us online and, and join our, our story as we as we move ahead. And uh, and gang, I know the Mac Power users audience size. If you're at all interested, just go sign up for his Instagram. 
I would love for our show to double their Instagram count. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. <laughs> you can learn something about Sudan in a way. It doesn't cost you anything. Go sign up for it. But either way, uh, Mark, thanks so much. I Please keep us posted on everything you're doing. And, um, and I love hearing those stories about four days without power, man. That's yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't think I'd last. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where when you're in it, it's like, well, this is just the way it is, and just gotta muddle along until until I see a wall socket again. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I'm in earthquake country, so we do have like water, and so we we've kind of taken some steps, and I feel like I'm okay, but I just feel like if I had a four day test, I'd probably fail miserably. So there you go. <laughs> uh, um. Uh, we are the Mac Power Users. Thank you to our sponsors today, 1Password, Jamp, Health IQ, and Booz Allen. You can find us over on relay.fm slash MPU. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter. The subscriber count keeps going up. It's a great way to get all the links and everything when the show publishes right in your mailbox. And we will see you next week.